0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scana studio today is Dr. Courtney Tolleson, who's professor of history at Furman University. For a number of years, she was associated with the Upcountry History Museum. She's had a class at Furman that created an exhibit about the Upcountry in World War I. I just looked at the students' comments and they couldn't believe that they were getting literally hands-on history.
1: It was a really wonderful uh, experience to to work with them. And because Furman is the size institution that it is, about 2,700, engaged learning is a very important approach to what we do. We constantly involve undergraduates in our research. And so this was a project that we started about four years ago. And one student and I began researching the history of Greenville in, in World War I in anticipation of the centennial, which is, of course, what we're in right now. And he is now in a Ph.D. program at Chapel Hill. But uh, after he graduated, other students came on board with this project, and so we created an exhibit, and it opened in uh, January and was displayed at Special Collections and University Archives, which is in the... um, a Duke Library on the Furman campus and it was a really holistic look at the experience that Greenville and also Furman had during World War One. Of course we talked a little bit about the population, the impact of Camp Severe. The response from university students wanting to go to war, but the government telling them, you know, stay in school. And the impact that World War One had on Greenville in the long term in terms of uh, public services, education and the like. Of course, we heavily utilized artifacts from Furman Special Collections, but we also worked with the Upcountry History Museum, the Greenwood County Historical Society, and other local individuals who had, you know, World War I ephemera as well.
0: One of the more interesting items that you brought to campus for the exhibit was the Doughboy statue, which stood on the old Furman campus downtown. And if I remember reading rightly, it has been moved all over town over the course of the last 100 years.
1: That's correct, Dr. Ecker. But Doughboy in Greenville is really interesting, and... It actually is considered the first Doughboy in the country to be installed and dedicated. It was installed and dedicated in June of 1921, and that was when Furman was an all-male institution located downtown on the banks of the Reedy River, where the current South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities is today. It was moved when Berman moved to its current location, downtown, about five miles north of Greenville. And when it was moved, it wasn't put in a particularly significant or very public spot. It was alongside the river in the middle of a traffic circle. And there are lots of stories of students painting him, um, putting makeup on him, dressing him up as the Easter Bunny or putting a Santa hat on him. He was vandalized at one point in time. Uh, Citadel cadets came in the middle of the night and painted him Citadel blue. And so the decision was made at one point in time in the early 2000s to actually recast uh, a Doughboy in bronze and create a military memorial plaza close to the football stadium. And at that point in time, Furman donated what what was Greenville's Doughboy. At that point in time in in the immediate post-World War I period, with the Furman campus being located downtown, Furman and the city of Greenville were seamless. So while it was on the Furman campus, it was really Greenville's Doughboy. So in the early 2000s, Furman made the decision to donate the original Doughboy to the Upcountry History Museum. And um, it's it has been returned back to the museum today. And so young people who visit um, to learn about upstate history are able to to see it.
0: Well... We know that there is a doughboy here in Columbia at in the Olympia Mill Village. It was purchased by the mill in honor of the young men who served from the mill village. Are there any others in South Carolina that you know of?
1: Oh, I'm sure there are. These proliferated. Um, the artist, Ernest Moore Vickanyi, did obviously the, um, the original and then uh, thousands were, were cast from his original. And they proliferated all throughout the country in the early to mid-1920s. It was a very patriotic thing to do, of course, for people to commemorate um, the fallen and, and, and also the soldiers who returned from this war in their community. So I don't know specifically of where they are, but I would be very surprised if there were not more doughboys in the state of South Carolina.
0: Well, since our listeners interact with our website, we may get some information. And if we do, I'll pass you on to other locations. <laughs> that
1: would be wonderful.
0: Simply because I, I think it it fits in with, with, with your area of, of study.
1: It sure does. I was thrilled to drive by on my way to the studio to, to talk with you this morning to pass the Doughboy on Olympia Avenue, and uh, that was wonderful.
0: Courtney, for our listeners who may not be up on early 20th century history, let's talk about... When World War One started, and when did the U.S. get into it?
1: Sure. So we need to go back to the summer of 1914. It's um, June and July. And the heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian Empire was assassinated in uh, Sarajevo. And this essentially put in motion a spiraling of events. Now, so many of the, the monarchs in Europe at this point in time had some sort of relation to Queen Victoria of England.
0: The Kaiser was her grandson. Mm -hmm. So was the Tsar.
1: In Russia, yes, Tsar Nicholas.
0: Russia had an alliance with Britain and France. France. and
1: then, yes. And it sort of spiraled out of control at this point in time. So Um, um, the United States, however was heavily isolationist in our mindset. We did not want to become involved in affairs across the pond, so to speak. And this is really a legacy from our founding fathers who warned us against interactions
0: overseas. No entangling alliances.
1: Mm-hmm. Europe, of course, was uh, is a much older continent um, and the countries over there and the people over there had a far longer and messier relationship Relationship with each other. And so given that the United States is protected by two oceans, we wanted to maintain neutrality and wanted to maintain our isolationist position. So we didn't get involved until the spring of uh, 1917. Europe had been at war almost three years. And it was
0: complicated because among the immigrant groups in the United States, two of the largest were Germans and the others were Irish who absolutely loathed the English. Mm-hmm. For example, Charleston had a German-language newspaper. There was also a newspaper that was edited by Irish in Charleston, and they were they didn't want us to go to war.
1: No, it was, and, and the president at this point in time, Woodrow Wilson, who, of course, has ties to South Carolina. His boyhood home is uh, has been preserved in here in Columbia, and his parents are buried in the historic First Presbyterian Church here in Columbia. But that was of strong concern for him, how America was going to handle our immigrants. And, of course, there was also a strong German population in Orangeburg, South Carolina.
0: Before we'd actually gotten into the war, there were, people who wanted us to go in on the side of the Allies, and there was a preparedness rally in Columbia. At the same time, in Lexington, there was a German boont rally. That tells you, in our state, that not everybody was, was ready to go over there, as the song
1: said. Absolutely. And of course, the governor of South, of South Carolina at the time, Richard Manning, is um, somewhat notorious now. His rhetoric strikes us as being extremely sort of bloodthirsty and, and violent, but a former governor of South Carolina, Coleman Bleese, was was opposed to going into this war and tried to recruit uh, textile mill operatives to his cause but was unsuccessful. Well,
0: well, he made a, a speech that was very damning about Governor Manning, talking about Reconstruction, said, This is a paraphrase. What the Republicans did during Reconstruction was steal our money. Dick Manning is stealing the lives of your boys.
1: And that's related to this very progressive era mentality. Uh, You know, a lot of progressive reformers at this point in time are wondering... You know, we have so much to, to clean up in our own country. Why, you know, and we're working so hard to improve the quality of life for American workers and uh, people who have moved to this country. Why are we spending so much money sending them off to die? So it's it's interesting to think about how um, the the dissension at this point in time, and even working on this exhibit, the students and I went through Furman periodicals, uh, the student periodicals and the students were debating whether or not we should go into this war.
0: Oh that's interesting. It
1: was very interesting and um, once you know you can see the the tide turn, however um, after January of 1917 when Kaiser Wilhelm announced the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare and then of course in March, um, Britain let us know about the Zimmerman telegram that they... All
0: right, let's talk about the Zimmerman telegram. Sure. I want to back just a little bit because Woodrow Wilson campaigned for re-election in 1916 on he kept us out of war. Yes. Okay. And,
1: and since... 96.7% of South Carolina's white, white male <laughs> voting populace uh, elected him. Yes. Yes.
0: So unrestricted submarine warfare, we know about the Lusitania being sunk with... American lives on board, but the Zimmerman telegram, I think, may have been sort of the last straw.
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, a German diplomat, Arthur Zimmerman, sent a, a uh, telegram to Mexico. That was his intent. The telegram was essentially trying to persuade Mes- Mexico that if the United States should enter this war, Mexico should attack the United States. And you know, when Germany and Mexico beat the United States in this two-front war. Of course, the United States' energies would be divided. That was the whole point. At that point in time, Mexico would would essentially receive land back, um, Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The problem was that the British intercepted the telegram when it traveled through London, and the British held on to it. They waited until they really wanted the United States to enter into this war. And they let us know in March of 1917. Also that month, at least five American merchant ships were sunk around the world. And Wilson, earlier after the sinking of the Lusitania in May of 1915, had warned Germany, not to sink any American uh, ships. And so it was a coming together of of multiple factors in March of 1917. And then the first week of April of 1917, um, President Wilson addressed the United States Congress and asked for a declaration of war against the German Empire. And then later that year in December, we also declared war on the Austro-Hungarian Empire.
0: And the response of Congress was overwhelming.
1: It was. There were a, a few who voted against it. Um Jeanette Rankin, pacifist from Montana. She she
0: she did the same thing in World War II. In
1: World War II? Yes, exactly. And then um Robert La Follette, I believe, mm-hmm. also voted against it. And that that uh provoked a lot of uh media attention in the state. There were several newspapers, the Greenwall News for instance published after the congressional vote, published where congressional pacifists lived all across the country, and did so in a very shameful tone.
0: Then there began to be this super patriotism. For example, there was a German-language newspaper in Charleston. It was shut down. There was a German-language school for kids. It was shut down. And then you had, across the country, the kind of silly thing is you couldn't have a dachshund That became a Liberty pup. Sauerkraut, hamburgers. Sauerkraut became Liberty cabbage.
1: Liberty steak for hamburgers. Liberty
0: steak. And our our friend who does sonatas and soundscapes couldn't have done that in 1917 because music by German composers was banned from the, you know, people weren't supposed to play it. It was unpatriotic.
1: I ran across an article recently about how it was extremely common to teach German in high schools in America up to the World War I period. And of course, that stopped significantly. Now we're very good friends with Germany, with BMW, their North American headquarters being located in Greer, South Carolina. How many people would have had a German language background had the United States not not, um, ceased German language instruction?
0: You mentioned Governor Manning's speeches, and and by the way, all of his sons went to war. So this wasn't a case like other wars. It was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. His sons all volunteered. But he also kind of put the state on a preparedness basis. Minute Men went out and spoke. Mm -hmm. Now, not like Lexington and Concord, but these were speeches to kind of well, there were propaganda St- Absolutely. to stir up the population to support the war effort by war bonds.
1: I find this so interesting, and I think it's really important for people today to realize, you know, in this in this age when we get CNN, New York Times, Fox News alerts on our telephones, this was not the case in, in World War I. And there was a Committee on Public Information that was established at the federal level that created the 4-Minute Men program, and I, I discovered in this research that the reason they were called the 4-Minute Men is because that was the amount of time it took to change the movie reels in World War One, And so the Committee on Public Information worked with select business leaders and civic leaders throughout communities across America, and they received... Uh, information from the federal government, why you should enlist, why you should sign up for the food pledge, why you should buy war bonds. And, and these civic leaders were responsible for going out into the community and giving the American people a, a, a consistent message. In Greenville, one of the more popular gathering spots for the community was at Textile Hall. Textile Hall had been built in 1917. Um, to house a southeastern uh, cotton and textile exposition. And of course this is when Greenville referred to itself as the textile capital of the South and then ultimately the textile capital of the world. But the four minute men very frequently gave speeches um, in front of textile hall and nationally, those locations in every community where people gathered.
0: The change of the reel so they could go into a movie theater and during the, the intermission, the four minutes, they get up and give their spiel.
1: Exactly. And that's how people would, um, would learn about the war. And Richard Manning is interesting. He was uh, very supportive of preparedness. And of course, this is back in uh, the times of staunch segregation. And so there was a, a white civic preparedness campaign and then an African-American civic preparedness campaign. And Manning appointed an African-American man known as the Booker T. Washington of South Carolina, Richard Carroll, to go across the state, travel across the state, and essentially encourage African-Americans to prepare themselves. So by the time Congress declared war, Americans were much more uh, supportive of that decision than, than they had been, certainly in the three years prior.
0: Besides Coleman Blees, who opposed the war, Mr. Grace out of Charleston, who would become mayor, he was Irish. He didn't like going to war to help the English.
1: These are some very complex issues, and um you know it's what's fascinating to me is that people have started to become more interested in in World War I. This was a war that has not been very prominent in our national narrative. Um, Far less significant in our national narrative than World War II, which um, eclipsed, you know, World War I in the minds of many Americans 20 years after World War I. But when I think back on World War I, it was... At, th- at that time, the World War, not World War I, it was the only World War, and the Great War, and the war to end all wars because of its particular nastiness.
0: The war to make the world safe for democracy, as President Wilson said.
1: Mm-hmm. And we obviously now know how, how that went <laughs> or didn't <laughs> go. <laughs> um,
0: there is the War Memorial on the campus of the University of South Carolina, which was built after the war. And it was almost like a temple I find
1: World War One memorialization intriguing, especially in comparison to World War Two memorialization, because throughout the twenties there was a, a a flurry of efforts to memorialize as quickly as possible, and you don't see this after World War Two. And I think I think in part it's because people looked back to the fact that they had done this so quickly and on such a grandiose scale as you're referring to with this this temple. Um, on the USC campus. And also with a little bit of, well, wow, that wasn't the war to end all wars. We had another. And I think a lot of people coming out of World War II were also um, very concerned about the fact that we immediately entered into this Cold War. And would that be a possible continuation of, you know, yet another conflict with someone that we had been allied with with during World War II. And so you don't see memorialization of World War II in the immediate years after that. And it's not really until the 50th anniversary of uh, the end of World War II in 1995. This is at the time, you know, when Tom Hanks and um, Tom Brokaw, they're making uh, films, they're doing documentaries.
0: The, the greatest generation.
1: Exactly. That you... It's in the mid-1990s that you really start to see a national effort um, to memorialize that. But, um, but I think a lot of it's rooted in, in that flurry of memorialization after World War I.
0: The war certainly had an impact on American culture, we've already talked about. And Hollywood got into this. There was actually a movie done about the American Revolution, and the producer was jailed because the English were our allies. We couldn't say anything bad about what they had done. And from history on the, on the American Revolution, because of World War I, what the English did here was kind of sanitized for 50 or 60 years, because, again, they had to be good guys.
1: What, what strikes me is the clampdown on public expression during World War I. The United States Congress passed the Espionage and Sedition Acts, making it illegal um, to speak out against the American government. And this is, in part, what prompted the the founding of the American Civil Liberties Union in 1921 in response to the Espionage and Sedition Acts. But in Greenville alone, there were 13 people who were arrested for espionage. One of them was a woman, and this was particularly shocking to people. She was from Germany. Her name uh, was Elsa Sykes. And um, she lived in Greenville for three or four years. She was married to an army captain. And she had made comments. She had allegedly made comments about how the Germans had a right to sink the Lusitania and that German atrocities weren't as bad as uh, people in America were, they thought that they, that they were. And, um, and she was arrested on a charge of espionage
0: for her comments. Yes. Was she tried?
1: I am still in the process of trying to figure out what happened to her. The trail of newspapers um, stops coverage after her arrest. The... The cases are actually, 13 cases, um, at least from Greenville, are actually housed at the National Archives and Records Administration Annex in um, south of Atlanta. And so I'm hoping to go down there and continue this research and learn more about what happened to her and to the other people who were arrested. One of, one of the other individuals who, were, who was arrested was a gentleman who was charged with hiding uh, a draft dodger.
0: Of course, if you go back to the Civil War, that was something rather common in the dark corner. <laughs> <laughs> that was not anything new to Greenville County.
1: No, no, there was a, there's a long history of that, apparently. <laughs>
0: well, the impact on the upcountry, particularly Greenville and Spartanburg, you get military camps open, National Guard camps.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and this was uh, a tremendous boon to the local economy and the local population. Around uh, 1914, 1915, Greenville had a population of about 17,000 in the city and about 77,000 in the county. We were strongly supportive of uh, recruiting a military camp to the community. Now, Spartanburg was as well, Columbia was as well, Aiken also engaged in this uh, patriotic competition to recruit an army camp. Greenville was awarded a camp with Camp Severe. Spartanburg was awarded a camp with Camp Wadsworth. And of course, Columbia was awarded a camp. Okay. Uh, camp Severe was named for a patriot of the American Revolution who had served in the Battle of Kings Mountain and also later served as the first governor of Tennessee.
0: Okay. And the camp in Spartanburg was Wadsworth?
1: Camp Wadsworth, who was named for a union uh, general um, in the Civil War.
0: I've heard stories from the folks in Spartanburg, and these were National Guard units were brought to be uh, retrained or uptrained trained before they went in service. And there were New York National Guard units, very elite, who came down in private railroad cars to Camp Wadsworth.
1: There were also African-American soldiers that came down from New York. And there were some, well, one particular instance of trouble when some of these African-American soldiers went into downtown Spartanburg. And we're not exactly sure what happened, but it seems that a um, a white gentleman became upset that the African-American soldier didn't tip his hat to the white gentleman. And the white gentleman, I guess, struck him. Several African-American soldiers came to uh, to his defense. And what's interesting about this is that those elite white soldiers from who had also traveled down from New York State came to downtown Spartanburg to also join in the defense of this African-American soldier from New York. There was a strong concern and fear of of arming and training African-American men during the World War I period. It's important to keep in mind that we're just over 50 years away from the American Civil War at this point in time. Governor Manning traveled to Washington, D.C. to make it very abundantly well known that white South Carolinians were not supportive of arming African-American men, training African-American men, and especially doing that in South Carolina. And the deal that the federal government essentially came to was that they decided they were going to arm and train African-American men, albeit the overwhelming majority of African-American men who served in World War One did not serve in combat roles. Um, The federal government also decided that African-American men were going to be placed in training camps in the South. But the compromise was that there would be at least twice as many whites um, as African-Americans. And so with the unit that was um, training in Spartanburg at Camp Wadsworth, very soon after this event um, that occurred downtown, that unit was sent overseas. They wanted to essentially get them out of Spartanburg because they feared race riots. And um, what was really concerning, I guess, about the level of training that they had received is that that particular unit had never had an opportunity to train all together because they had to maintain that two to one split. So they were sent overseas to to fight having never actually trained together.
0: Courtney, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Courtney Tolleson of Furman University about South Carolina and World War One. We've got Camp Wadsworth, Camp Severe. We've got Camp Jackson. It wasn't Fort Jackson yet. And that story is a little bit interesting because a group of Columbia businessmen got together and purchased some acreage on the edge of town and offered it to the War Department. And, of course, they made sure that they used the connections they had with the Wilson administration to make that happen. It wasn't just with, with Wilson himself, the Gonzales brothers who owned the the state newspaper were very closely uh, involved with Democratic, National Democratic Party politics. We have
1: a similar story in Greenville in terms of how we were awarded uh, Camp Severe. Okay. There was a group of local businessmen. Actually, the first Rotary Club uh, was established in Greenville in 1916, and this group of Rotarians, knowing what the economic benefits had been from the presence of Camp Weatherhill, which was a Spanish-American war camp. Knowing the economic benefits that that camp had brought to Greenville wanted to have a World War I training camp in Greenville as well. And so there are some recognizable names today, Alistair Furman Mm -hmm. and brothers Joe and William Serene in Greenville today. There's Mm -hmm. Serene Stadium. Uh, Furman played there for a long time. Greenville High School plays there um, today. So the Serene brothers and Alistair Furman and a group of Rotarians essentially optioned just over a thousand acres in an area between Greenville and Taylor, South Carolina, that comprised this tiny little community of Paris. Leonard Wood, General Leonard Wood, was the gentleman who was actually in charge of selecting the campsites for the southeast. Joe Serene and Leonard Wood, had been fast friends during the Spanish-American War. They had served together and had remained very close friends. So the Rotarians hosted Leonard Wood when he came to Greenville, and uh, it's not surprising at all that um, Greenville was awarded a camp soon thereafter.
0: Well, as it's always been in South Carolina, it's who you know that... (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well... And I wanted to add a a footnote to talk about the training of African-American soldiers. They did train a combat unit at Fort Jackson, but it was completely segregated.
1: Of course, uh, and African American soldiers, um, as 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 many of the listeners will will know, the military was segregated until World War yeah. II. <laughs> there was an African American unit at Camp Severe, mm-hmm. the 321st Labor Battalion. They did not serve in combat, but rather the labor battalion was, of course, responsible for digging trenches, um, burying or reburying bodies, uh, fixing
0: trenches overseas. Mm-hmm. Well, and what about women in the war?
1: Women in uh, Greenville were very supportive of the war in myriad ways. Of course, volunteering with the Red Cross. The winter of 1917 and 1918 was the coldest winter that the Upstate had had on record, and so there was a knitting sweaters and knitting socks campaign for the soldiers. One local woman, Louise Mays, was very involved uh, statewide, really, in the War Camp Community Service. And that organization, their primary purpose was to inform soldiers at various camps um, throughout the nation about the new communities in which they were living. Uh, where the churches who would welcome these soldiers were located, lodging. Uh, this was very important because if you look at the benefits of these camps to the communities, oftentimes wives, families would travel with the soldier. We don't see this in World War II, but this this was still very much the case in World War One. Uh, they would travel with the soldier while he was still in training, and so. There was a housing shortage in Greenville. Practically every spare property, every spare bedroom was leased um, to family members of of the soldiers. The women of the Greenville Women's College, which ultimately will merge with Furman in the late 1930s, were very supportive of the war effort. The women, of course, supported um, war bonds. African-American women were involved in segregated fashion in many of the same activities. There is an interesting and um, sad, really, story about African American women. However, in Greenville, the federal government passed worker fight laws that applied to all able-bodied men within a certain age range. You know, you had to be fighting for the American military or you had to be working to support um, America's efforts overseas. And interestingly, a lot of African American soldiers, when they Entered into the military, they started earning higher salaries than they had previously earned in their jobs in um, places across the south the southeast, and so their wives frequently quit their jobs, most often as domestics, you know, housekeepers in white homes. This very much upset the mayor of Greenville, Mayor Harvley, also um, Governor Manning was known to make several public comments about cooks, nannies, housekeepers you know quitting um, their jobs. And so in Greenville, there was proposed legislation before Greenville City Council to apply work or fight only to African-American women. This would have required African-American women to have carried identification cards, proving that they were employed full-time Monday through Friday, nine to five. And if they could not produce this identification card proving their employment, it was subject to jail time or to fines. Now, thankfully, the African-American community, the leadership came together and organized an opposition of this and sat down with city council members and shared their opposition. And um, one particular white male member of city council, Henry T. Mills, argued very passionately that the African-American community in Greenville had been very supportive of of the war effort, and he wanted, quote, no humiliation for such patriotic people. So the motion, the the legislation died, but it was actually passed in several other places throughout the Southeast, and nationally, the NAACP also organized in opposition to work or fight being applied specifically to African-American women.
0: It's around the time of World War I that the NAACP enters South Carolina and becomes active below the radar, but it is, particularly in Charleston and, and Columbia, and even places like Orangeburg.
1: Right. I think um, Charleston and Columbia established chapters in 1917, and then um, Anderson, South Carolina, had a chapter in 1919. Greenville had trouble establishing a chapter. And and, um, there were efforts throughout the 1920s, but we don't officially get a chapter until the
0: 1930s. Part of that might be demographic Mm -hmm. in terms of the the relatively small number of African Americans in the... In the upstate compared to the Midlands. In in the the upstate. Yes, in Lowcountry. Now, you called your exhibit Over Here, Over There. And of course, those of us who've done cultural history know the George M. Cohen song, you know, Over There became a a national hit. Anything else like that that you want to throw into the mix? I mean, did you have music playing for the exhibit?
1: Absolutely. Of course we did. As you well know be, from from graduate school, I'm also very interested in social and cultural history. And the music that comes out of the World War One period was so incredibly patriotic and nationalistic. You know, the art, the literature that comes out of yeah. this. And okay. so... Yes. When you, you, you
0: think about George M. Cohen in particular, you know, uh, you're a grand old flag. Uh, give my regards to Broadway. Right. Um,
1: so, yes, when you walked into the exhibit, um, George M. Cohen's song was, was playing. We had a little a little um, text panel, of course, informing viewers of the exhibit because so many people aren't aware of George M. Cohen and and, um, of the song. But we sort of played with that title and did Over Here, Over There because we wanted not only to focus on the impact of World War One on Greenville and on Furman. But we also wanted to talk about the experiences of Furman students um, overseas. Six Furman students died in the war. We also wanted to talk about the units who had trained at Camp Severe, um, particularly the the 30th Old Hickory Division, the 81st uh, Wildcat Division, the 42nd Rainbow Engineers, um, the African American, the 321st um, Labor Battalion. And we wanted to, to share what we could about their experiences overseas. One, when I'm thinking about Greenvillians or people from the upstate um, overseas, I can't help but think about Freddie Stowers yeah, from, and from Sandy Springs. Yes. Um, Sandy Springs is a community just outside of of Greenville. And um, Freddie Freddy Stowers was a combat African American veteran of World War One. Um, only 9% of African-Americans in South Carolina served in combat roles in, in World War One, but he was one of them. And he um, was uh, was killed in 1918. He charged a machine gun nest and, and was shot and then proceeded on and was trying to essentially attack the second German trench line and then was um, mortally wounded, but, you know, before before his moment of death was encouraging his men to to uh, to keep going they had been lured closer to the germans the germans had actually come up on a hill and put their hands up as if they were surrendering so it was it was a trick at the time during the war uh freddie stowers was recommended for the medal of honor but the army the official i guess response was that the paperwork had been misplaced or or lost over time in the early 1990s Congress became very concerned. The military became very concerned that there were no African American Medal of Honor recipients from World War One or World War Two. There had been forty-nine African American Medal of Honor recipients from the Civil War, the Native American Wars, and for the Spanish American War, but none from World War One or World War Two. And so there began a. Um, an effort to go back through the files. And at this point in time, Stowers' recommendation was uh, was discovered. So a team went over to France, uh, investigated, and um, I believe it's the Army Decorations Committee mm-hmm. uh, recommended um, that he be um awarded the Medal of Honor. And so this was um, posthumously, of course, awarded um, in a ceremony at the White House under the first uh, president, uh, George Bush. Mm -hmm. Freddie Stowers' two sisters, uh, Georgina and Mary, accepted it on his behalf. But what's really interesting to me is that this started an effort, a congressional effort, um, in accordance with the military, of course, to investigate other African-Americans in World War I and World War II. Some African-Americans who had been recipients of the Distinguished Service Cross were um, essentially upgraded to a Medal of Honor. And um, we have added to this. But Freddie Stowers was the the first African-American in the country to to receive a medal of honor from World War 1.
0: Well, he was one of seven South Carolinians to receive the medal of honor in World War 1. And if you look at the small population of South Carolina, on a percentage basis it was it was a higher rate of award than any other state in the country. You read their stories and some of the hardest whether it's the Battle of the Marne or whatever, South Carolinians were right in the thick of it when they got there.
1: Absolutely, several of those. Most of the, the white recipients of the Medal of Honor from South Carolina were members of the, the 30th Old Hickory um, Division. And they served with the British Army, um, but were one of two units responsible for breaking the Hindenburg Line, the the Western Front, the German defenses on, on the Western Front. And their experiences probably aren't as well-known as they should be, I think, probably because they were working in part with um, the British. But there were six Medal of Honor recipients, uh, well, 12 from uh, the 30th, six of which were from South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, they were active in the um, the EPRO campaign and also the SUM offensive. The 81st didn't go over to Europe until, I believe, August of 1918, so fairly late in the war. But they engaged in combat. They were still in Engaged in combat on at you know at the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month when the armistice of Compiegne ended you know the hostilities from that war and of course the eighty first has a really tragic story here in our state they were formed at um, Camp Jackson and then were actually traveling to Camp Severe in um, early summer late spring of nineteen eighteen and they were being transported by train and um, soon after they left Camp Jackson. Two of the train cars overturned while on a train trestle, and um, nine of those soldiers died and, and 25 were injured. And to this day, now Fort Jackson considers it their largest mass deaths you know, of, of, of anything that's ever happened at the, at the training
0: facility. Well, South Carolina is going to war, but one of the things that happens through association of the trainees with the population is the outbreak of the influenza epidemic.
1: Absolutely. And uh, September and October of 1918 is when this hits the hardest. There was a statewide ban on holding meetings inside. So in the exhibit, for instance, we had a a, um, photograph of a rotary meeting that that took place on the, the roof of one of the downtown buildings. And they had lunch outside and they had their program, as they always do. There are a few buildings left from the site of Camp Severe, one of which is a Baptist church. And the Baptist church has a cemetery. And in that cemetery are buried dozens of of uh, soldiers from Camp Severe who died of the influenza. There were also Army nurses who were obviously exposed to soldiers with influenza who passed away as well. And Camp Severe unusually became one of extremely few, I think maybe three camps around the country that out of necessity began utilizing African-American nurses at the infirmary there during the influenza.
0: The outbreak in the state was traced to the military camps.
1: Absolutely. And, um, you know, war is a very – it's a story of mobility, People are constantly moving around. They're going to new parts of the country. They're coming into contact with different people all the time. They're being shipped overseas. And so it was extraordinarily difficult to quarantine people um, to restrict the spreading of uh, what became known as the the Spanish influenza after the war. The statistics of uh, deaths from the state of South Carolina are available in the state health um, records from this time. And uh, interestingly, it didn't discriminate. Influenza didn't attack one you know specific group of the population it wiped out people you know across the board children elderly healthy people in you know midlife soldiers civilians
0: in, in fact teenagers to the 30 group I mean that they that was the group if there was one group that was hit of course they were the ones who were also the most mobile
1: right and the ones serving in the war
0: you talked about the death rate at Camp severe but if, if you read the Greenville paper and the Spartanburg paper they talk about the funeral corteges that are just Daily, going through town, shipping the bodies.
1: Yes, there are there are journals that I read and uh, putting together this exhibit, talking about the same thing. the The casket stacked at the railway station, you know it, it was it was overwhelming at this point in time, and it, the tragedy, the deaths are more than from the war, hmm. world, worldwide. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the war, of course, winds down on November the eleventh, eleventh hour of the eleventh day. Eleventh month, and sadly, some of the South Carolinians who died were killed in just days before the, the the armistice. When I was growing up, it was still called Armistice Day, November the eleventh. It's now Veterans Day, but it was Armistice through the fifties, right? Yeah, through the fifties, through the
1: post World War II period. Yeah. yeah, I'm hopeful that the centennial of this war will bring about a greater awareness of. Of Veterans Day,
0: well, uh, the impact of service in the war on the young men who went overseas—they came back and they had seen the world. African Americans, particularly in the Charleston area, who had fought, thought, "Well, we fought the war to make the world safe for democracy," and they came back and found out it wasn't going to be the case. There was a horrible race riot in Charleston right after the war
1: in 1919, and there's stories of the military suggesting to African-American soldiers they shouldn't wear their uniforms home. There's evidence of efforts among white segregationists, white supremacists, with plans to make sure that returning African American soldiers quote unquote know their place when they come back and the summer of um, of nineteen nineteen which is the first summer when soldiers from World War I returned to America, is as you mentioned known as uh, as red summer because there were so many race riots across the country. whites um, had a, had very strong reactions felt extremely threatened to to um, the African American empowerment that had come out of out of um, their experiences in World War World War One.
0: Well, and of course, as soon as the war was over, the camps began to close. Uh, Sevier closes, Wadsworth closes, Jackson closes as an active post, but it's kept as a National Guard training center. And eventually, of course, in World War Two, it does become Fort Jackson. But the Navy Yard in Charleston begins to wind down. So this boost to the economy that happened, that leaves about the same time that the boll weevil arrives and cotton prices collapse.
1: Which is, of course, detrimental to the upcountry economy. During the, the war years after war uh, broke out in Europe, there was a uh, an embargo, a British imposed embargo against transporting goods um, to Europe. And so that had a detrimental effect on the price of cotton in the upcountry. It dropped to the break-even price of $0.10 and then dropped um, down to a low of $0.05. And so it wasn't even worth picking. Cotton fields blanketed the upcountry. And then it wasn't until 1915, 1916 that the American government began to change some of our economic policies and that – in 1916, American exports were triple what they'd been before the war. So you start to see this incredible rejuvenation of of the of cotton, the price of cotton, and also the textile uh, industry in in the Upstate.
0: Yes, textiles were operating three shifts around the clock.
1: Exactly. Um, the The value of the textile output in Greenville um, between 1916 and 1918 doubled. But like you said, the 1920s is a different a different story, and this is a story of of um, stretch outs those very high you know war time um, wages were <laughs> were no more
0: and twenty cent cotton was gone
1: exactly the the 1920s is a very
0: different different story um, so so the impact on the war it boosted the economy it changed things at least for a while, but when white and black Carolinians doughboys came back, and that was what they were called doughboys, some things had changed at least intellectually their Two clergymen, that one was uh, Alexander Gary, who was an Episcopal clergyman in Charleston, that later became a bishop, and Kirkman Finley in Columbia, who also later, both both were chaplains during the war, both became bishops of the Episcopal Church, and both became, for their day, rather outspoken in terms of African Americans should be allowed to vote. Kirkman Finley, in particular, was very vocal. He said, they deserve, they earned the right to vote. Now, 1921, 1922, that is a radical statement.
1: Absolutely. And I think you see this with World War II as well. You know, just that experience of of um, going overseas and, and witnessing another culture and seeing that there are different ways of doing things opens – that the experience of travel and, and exposure opens people's minds. And, of course, the French had a radically different relationship with um, their troops of, of color.
0: Well – There were victory parades when the troops came home. And in South Carolina, in Charleston, there was a parade for white soldiers and there was a parade for black soldiers.
1: Yes. Segregation um, was—I think there was— an effort to more firmly entrench um, segregation, um, like we just discussed with Red Summer and the race riots, you know, giving that impression. Yes, you may have served your country, and and um, yes, you may have been enlightened, and yes, the French may have treated you radically differently, but you're back in the American
0: South now. And that is another story.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, it is, and I'd uh, I'd love to discuss that with you as well.
0: Well, Courtney, Alfred's giving me the wind up sign. Any last words? First of all. Have you got another project on the upcountry coming up?
1: I am still very much engaged in uh, in the project of World War One, and so I'm going to stick with this for a little bit a little bit longer. There's some more questions and some more um, aspects of it I want to uncover.
0: And any last words on the subject before we sign off?
1: Just that people today often wonder why they should care about a war that happened 100 years ago. People. And Greenville asked me, why should we care about this event that happened 100 years ago? And I think about all the modernization and diversification that happened, in part as a result from the presence of Camp Severe and the, the economic boom coming from the textile industry. When I look at the advancements in education, when I look at the advancements in public services like roads, the water company, public hospital, the first library uh, being established at this point in time. It's really the point in time that Greenville evolves into a modern city. And a lot of those soldiers who had trained at Camp Severe from all over the country returned to Greenville. So there's a diversification that occurs. So why should we care? Why should Greenvillians care? Why should other people in the United States care? Um, I think it would be worth looking into the impact of this war on their communities.
0: Well, Dr. Courtney Tollison, professor of history at Furman University, I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. 2017 is the centennial of the United States' involvement in World War I. And with South Carolina, there's so many connections from President Woodrow Wilson to the training bases in Greenville, Spartanburg, and Columbia, and the impact on the economy and every segment of the population. It's a very rich story that, quite frankly, has been forgotten over the last 100 years. But thanks to scholars like Courtney Tolleson, they're bringing back to all of us an important part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.